Hello and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures, who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to actually our first interview of the year, although when you hear this, it probably won't be. But I'm incredibly excited today to talk to Ebony Freeman from the Watson Institute. And before we dive into all of that, just welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. 8.30 on my time. Where are you? And tell me a little bit about yourself and then we'll dive into the problem like we always do. Sounds good. Thank you, Vincent. My name's Ebony Freeman. I'm here in Boulder, Colorado. I just had lunch and I am the Senior Director of Global Community Engagement at the Watson Institute. The Watson Institute is an exciting global accelerator and I can't wait to get into it a bit more of you. Beautiful. All right, cool. So we're going to come back to a problem that I, I don't fully understand this space because we talked about just before getting on the show I've had some exposure to impact-led accelerators, and so that's kind of leading with the solution. But what I understand, what is the problem that the accelerators generally and obviously yourselves are tackling? And let's understand the quantum and the gravity of that problem if we can. Absolutely. In general, accelerators are bringing folks who don't have access to the resources necessary to what some may call 10x their business. We're bringing those resources to folks who are what is often called under-resourced, whether that's due to region. You know, if you're in a rural area, that can be a challenge. If you just aren't near a major finance capital like New York or Sydney, that can be a challenge. And really empowering those folks to create the impact that they were always capable of doing if they had the right resources nearby. Got it. Okay. And that's the accelerator model kind of more broadly, but very specifically talking about impact-led acceleration the, I, I'm trying to stitch together what I think is the case here, which and, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm probably wrong, is there is a set of problems that exist in the world, right? And I think, I mean, we tend to roll up to the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, so I'm going to kind of use that as an umbrella. That's the easy one. I don't have to reinvent that wheel. And a subset of those problems, or a, probably a larger subset of those problems, problems that probably need to be tackled by a set of people who just don't have access to this type of resource typically. And this is kind of the gap. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Exactly right. I think it is part of that larger conversation of grassroots organizing and grassroots solutions, because as both of us know, just being adults in the world, when someone comes in and says, oh, you have a problem, let me solve it exactly the way I think it should be solved for your life, that usually doesn't work out quite as well as if someone who's in your community understands and has lived your problem, has identified a solution and is ready to take it into the market. And I have scant knowledge of this, but I, my memory serves me that there was someone who went in and tried to build some water wheels, water wells or something. Is this the right example to be using or the better ones? Tell me, let's get dive into a couple of these bad examples. Exactly right, Vincent. I know exactly which example you're bringing up there. And I believe it was, unfortunately, some of my fellow residents of the United States who were very excited to go into a region of, and I apologize, I don't remember the name of the country. This sounds so bad, but it was in Africa for sure. I believe it might have been Ghana. And they wanted to 
ensure there was clean water for a community. Instead of asking the community and doing some participatory learning and ethnographic studies, they just said, oh, you know what we'll do? We'll build a seesaw where kids can play on that seesaw and generate clean water for their community. Right. Unfortunately, those poor little babies are working a long eight-hour, 10-hour days playing on that yeah. seesaw. So right. it was unfortunate both for the children, the adults who now had their kids working for their water, and it just didn't lead to the kind of impact that we hope to see in the world. And that's where Watson Institute and exactly what you said, social impact-driven accelerators are trying to solve that problem by working with people who are on the ground, who right. are not going to come in with an ivy tower solution and really coming in with solutions based on hard-earned knowledge. Got it. And kind of compounding that, I think, is a lot of those challenges, if we think again about that UN sustainable umbrella, if you have to try and draw a normal curve or a distribution curve of access to resources as it stands right now, my guess is the types of challenges that are really at the pointy end of that kind of UN sustainable development goals, very disparate to the, to the amount of access to resources those people have. So it's kind of further compounded. Like if you're living in Boulder, Colorado, there's a bunch of accelerators there and you have access to a bunch of things there. But if you're trying to solve problems in, to take your example, Ghana or whichever country it is, then you have far less access to resources. So the need for what it is that you're trying to do is greatly magnified. Exactly right. Exactly right. Unfortunately, and it's been a historical fact, all of humanity, the folks who often have the biggest problems have the least resources or the folks who are dealing with the largest problems. I won't say that they always own it. As we can see with climate change, the folks who are the nations who are creating some of the largest climate change negative impacts are not the ones who are facing the largest climate change challenges. And so that's just another exciting example of the kind of folks that we bring into the Watson Institute as fellows or folks who actually want to solve those massive generational issues. Okay, cool. And then, then again, I think I'm going to use this word spectrum a few times because I think there's no kind of absolutes in this, but give me a sense of kind of, I guess, the geography of this. And I'm using that kind of pretty bluntly, but someone who's trying to solve a problem in Colorado versus someone who's trying to solve a problem in rural USA, which would be further away from Boulder, Colorado, and then someone who's trying to solve something in sub-Saharan Africa, like what happens to the resource curve? Is it that they don't have access to I mean, it's all of these things, but what what are the things that you're trying to resolve, I guess? Is it people or knowledge or capital or know-how? Like, like, let's unpack that a bit more. Vincent, you're stealing my part. You hit every <laughs> marker there. You know, Watson Institute really focuses on combining non-traditional educational curriculum with that community engagement ecosystem. Uh-huh. So we're not only providing tools in the form of recorded lessons from years of experts who have solved the similar problems in similar environments, we're also creating that bridge between these experts who unfortunately wouldn't necessarily meet Zenab, which is a great Zenab Bier. She is based in New Delhi, India, and she's focusing on cleaning up space, which is a fantastic Sorry, problem. Space? Exactly. Yes, intergalactic space. Okay, she's great. focusing that up in New Delhi. However, a lot of the resources for that are based in Silicon Valley. So when right. a person like that is provided with, or with a, when a leader like that is provided with the tools the network and the community to 10x her project and her initiative, it changes everything, hopefully for generations. Right. And you talked about kind of network and mentoring community and, and I hopefully I played that back, but 
Like I'm trying to think through a founder in any context, not just impact led, you know, regardless of their access to resources at the stage where you're trying to break through the chasm for want of a better word, what are you observing is kind of the, the big lever here for these people? Is it for these leaders to use your word? Is it that they're, that they just don't have access to the right person to be able to talk to, to is it a relationship thing or is it a knowledge thing or capital thing? What tends to be the, the lever that really gets people over the chasm? You know, I appreciate that question. I'd say, and I'm drilling down a little bit further, I just mentioned mentorship, but the real lever is sponsorship. So right. connecting fellows with folks who are corporate social responsibility directors or who are leaders in government right. and their local government. Those relationships, as you called it, are things that transform good to great. Right. And and I, I'm kind of playing back my own kind of experience my ability to ship something to market now, having spent 20 years doing stuff and now 20 years knowing people who know how to open a door, it, like it's, it's chalk and cheese. Like I, I, I can innovate 10 times faster now than I could before. I know more, obviously, but also if I know someone who works in that role in that business who can validate the thing that I'm doing and tell me where I'm wrong or say you need to talk to this person. So you're obviously trying to fast track that. And it is this kind of I guess the thing that I'm going to is there's a reputational challenge that comes with that, right? So how do you manage that when you're engaging the people who you want to be joining the Institute? I believe I understand your question, so I'll take a stab at the answer. Sure. But if I'm getting it wrong, just cut me off. Sure. So the key there is we don't look at it as a single instance. Right. A Watson Fellow is not a fellow for three days, one time in their entire life. It is a lifelong commitment to a community of uh, self-education and, commu- and group education. So right. we not only, as you mentioned, the reputational risk, you know, not everyone is going to be happy to receive an email from, well, haven't we all got that scam email of, I'm a prince in X country and all I need is (laughs) 800,000. You know, understandably, not everyone is going to be open to those kind of inquiries. However, we, that's another piece of the curriculum pie for Watson Institute is that we not only prepare them in terms of tools for developing their business, but also communication tools and Mm -hmm. ensuring that they know how to reach out, how to follow up, because those skills, unfortunately, are still not taught in classrooms across the globe. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. I think, I guess this is kind of what I'm getting to is that there is a, a skill gap and a knowledge gap and an experience gap, and you're kind of trying to short circuit that. The world kind of changed a fair bit in the context of where we work and how we work in the last three years. I don't need to mention the word because we've all heard that word enough in the last three years. But is that a big, I mean, I think from memory, you guys started in 2018. Have I got that right? Did I get that right? I don't know why I'm thinking that number. Tell me if I'm wrong. Not quite. We're 10 years old this year. Okay, 2013. Sorry, my apologies. I must have been looking at a program that was 2018. Anyway, the the, the point that I was going to make was that if in five years or 10 years of operation, a lot changed in the last three years, That's a. am guessing that's a tailwind for what you're doing and how you're doing it, or it's enabled you to add additional leverage. Like, to, let, Let's help me understand this macro in the context of what you're doing. Absolutely. I'd say it's kind of an interesting situation. Watson was definitely what one might call a winner coming out of that word we won't mention in that it really forced us to operationalize our systems and programs in a way that is benefited. I always thought word in that book, it's called Anti-Fragile. You know, that's one of my favorite books. And it really forced the 
fragile mindset upon us that we had to shift from primarily in-person programming to hybrid for the regions that allowed that because we have offices or we have programs and offices in China, Guatemala, South Florida, Boulder, Colorado, and who knows where else tomorrow. But ensuring that we could not only continue to serve those folks, but also be able to serve new folks who we maybe never would have been able to connect with without this virtual first shift that took place over the last three years. Yeah, and I I guess kind of where I was going with that as well was if the problems are inherently in places that are hard to reach, like via resource capital, whatever it is, and a lot of that, that access has been, you know, brought together there still seems to be a, a, an overwhelming which within an accelerator model, not just impact-led, not just yours, to make these things in person. I'm trying to understand and reconcile that distinction. Like, what's happening there? Absolutely. You know, we have... At Watson, we have a mixture of programs that is both a benefit to our corporate partners, but also to our fellows. So we have a venture accelerator program that is three weeks in person in Boulder, Colorado. And when I tell you the visa challenges we deal with, oh my goodness, Vincent. But we fly everyone in from El Salvador, China, Kenya is a big area for us as well. And we have that three weeks of in-person engagement. And exactly what you said, it's critical for building the foundation of those relationships. And as I love to say, this is where they're going to meet and shake hands with their future Nobel Prize winning peers. And experience is just not the same virtually, but I think it's been a really great shift for Watson that before the Venture Accelerator was purely in person. That's 16 weeks in person. We've really adjusted it in a way that benefits the fellows as well so that they can go back to their home base and do that work on the ground. Yeah, I was just going to say, you kind of don't want to take them out of the context for the problem they're actually solving. (laughs) But I mean, it's a kind of an interesting kind of rabbit hole here because you start to almost trying to think of the right word. I'm going to say disintermediate, but it's kind of fragment the model. There was this wonderful picture about 10 years ago where someone took the homepage of Craigslist and then they put a logo against every single category on Craigslist from kind of, you know, Airbnb and banking and personal dating and all these things. And that was an unbundling of Craigslist. And I feel like the accelerator model is probably in a similar place where it says, you know what, traditionally we had a 16-week accelerator program and all of these things happened in the program in Boulder. And you might now argue, you know what, there's a 16-week program this is you do by yourself. This you do in a local chapter with three other people who are within 200 kilometers of you. And then this happens in person because these three days just can't be done remotely. Is that kind of where it's all heading for you and generally, do you think? I'd say that's the right direction in terms of our mindset. And I think you hit it on the nail. Your research was perfect because the middle item that you mentioned about going back into your local context of three or so of your fellow fellows in the region, exactly right. We have a a piece of the Watson Institute Fellowship Program is called the Base Camp. Right. We're exactly that. They We have, for example, the East African region, you know, El Salvador as a nation, they have their own base camp. And those fellows come together and support each other in amplifying their impact and actually sharing out the knowledge that they gain in the Watson program. Because we find that it wouldn't be necessarily helpful if we help one person. We want to help 100 people. We want to help 1,000 people. And the way we get there is that we transfer this non-traditional educational curriculum and community engagement ecosystem to these individual fellows. They go back into their communities 
hosts a base camp, which is about a 72-hour workshop with people right. in their community between 20 to 50 people. And those community members then get their own piece of the Watson experience. And when I say how many of our future fellows are former base camp attendees, it's beautiful. Eco- it's a beautiful circle. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like, and this might be a crash comparison, but it kind of feels like the missionary for our generation. Do you know what I mean? Like going into a place, taking an idea, seeding an idea, and then having a whole cohort of people who understand a thing and, and think a certain way, just in a different context, aimed at a different outcome. I find that super fascinating. I want to come back to that a little bit, but I also want to understand a bit more something you touched on just a minute ago, which is kind of these enterprise partnerships. And we spoke before we jumped on the call about Ford, which is the the program that you have coming up right right now. But like, how does that play into this? Like, let, There's a whole bunch of rabbit holes. So let's just start with what they are and then how they work and what problem they're solving. Yes, absolutely. So Watson has different scales of packages that we work with corporate foundations, family funds, and individual philanthropists. Kind of the bottom, which you might call the, all right, no, I'll call it the classic level. We'll call it that the classic package. Yep. Yep. There we go. Is <laughs> sponsoring a single fellow and right. take in and fundraising if that's necessary for them to be able to experience a 16-week experience. An, an individual we're talking about here. Exactly, an individual person. And sure. we work with our corporate partners, some corporate partners and family funds and individual philanthropists are interested in, you know, I really want someone from Chiapas, Mexico. Right. That's pretty specific, but we will go out and find you. Was that a real example? Was it specifically that city? Okay. Was it some emotional connection back to that city? Is that what happened? Or do you understand where they came from with it? Well, we like to have a conversation with our partner. Like, okay, why do you want someone specifically from Chiapas? But, you know, once they give us that directive, we have a good flywheel of our network that we reach out to our partners in the region. And we sometimes we actually go on the ground and we want to validate for ourselves that there's an individual doing the work they say that they did in the application. And Mm. we deliver that 15 options of fellows to the corporate partner or family fund or individual philanthropist, and they select their favorite. And then we actually bring them into the fellowship. And, you know, I'd say what a critical part of this is that we don't just drop the 14 who weren't selected. They are part of the community. They still get access to exciting and helpful resources as well. And that's probably one of my favorite things about Watson is that we don't really drop people. That once you're part of the community, you're here. Yeah. And I think this talks to this kind of spectrum of resources that it's available, right? Like, I mean, we, there's some classic studies on community. I think Meetup was probably the prime example of this, where they, they basically said, look, there's 100 people in a community and 90 of them will participate in so far as that they will turn up, but they won't actively contribute. And you'll have nine who actively contribute. And you'll have one who wants to set up their own thing. And you kind of build community models out of that. My guess is that anyone who's trying to do impact-led stuff in their local community is is your customer or member or whatever. And really what you're trying to do is work out which of those three buckets they're in. Exactly right, Vincent. Okay, cool. So it still it still doesn't fully understand the enterprise partnership because there's some, like that sounds like a pretty classic model of, hey, we've got a program, there's going to be 14, but if you gave us X, we would have 16, that would be better. But is it, is, does it go beyond that? Like that's that's kind of, as you said, the classic model. Is there, is there examples where these enterprises are getting involved in a more, meaningful way and I don't mean that in the kind of bigger because I think that's one thing but I'm trying to understand where they tied into things that they care about and that they're leading and they say are important to their organization how's that starting to play out 
Perfect question. So then I'll go to my the gold and the platinum packages. Mind you, <laughs> I know we're on the development team. So <laughs> if you if you're listening and you go to a Watson rep and say, "Can I have the platinum package?" Pretty <laughs> much, no one's going to know what you're talking about. So the standard, the gold, and the classic, but yeah. Yeah. So gold package is then actually sponsoring a group of fellows, which is exactly what you're saying, kind of moving forward in that engagement level. So with the single fellow, of course, we connect the sponsoring party and the fellow, the group of fellows, the partner may actually attend part of programming and lead sessions. And, you know, we found is actually really helpful. And back in my olden days, when I worked at Google, it was a helpful piece there as well. It is a great, And this is where I love double, triple, quadruple benefits of a single decision. By bringing in those corporate partners to actually lead sessions during the program and be, as one might call it, kind of heavy-handed, heavy, heavily involved, that's also a great leadership development opportunity for the employees at these large companies. They have never, like if you're in marketing and you're a great marketing leader, but you've never had the chance to do public speaking where it mattered, where it actually, the lessons you're teaching could change a region. My gosh, that's an exciting opportunity for somebody. Uh, And that's what we might call like the gold package. And platinum, what you're kind of alluding to is the fully named fellowships. So, you know, not just that, you're not sponsoring one fellow, you're not sponsoring a group. You're actually spell- sponsoring an entire cohort. So we right. have the Ford Fund, which is Global Virtual, Western Union Foundation, Global Virtual, and our upcoming Truest Foundation Fellowship, which is at Georgia specific, based in Atlanta. Right. And when you get to that end of the spectrum, my guess is that they move from financial support and in cohort support to trying to align a cohort of people for a problem that they are either part of the problem or trying to be part of the solution? Is that kind of what happens when you move up that value curve? Exactly right. So what I'd love to reframe away from part of the problem, we're going to focus on part of the solution. <laughs> but do you see where I'm coming from with this, right? They'll have something that they're aware of. Like the example that I think of is, we'll take Atlanta as an example, Coca-Cola put a product out into the market and there's a whole lot of plastic waste that comes with that. And they sell a product that's bottled water, which probably isn't great either. And you have to be honest, okay, well, that's your organization. That's how you make your money. So how are you involved with this? And I guess the reason I'm asking this is there's clearly an opportunity for them to be part of the evolution of their own business. But there's also this risk that, you know, they're like, hey, ignore that thing over there. Focus on this shiny object here that looks nice and looks good in an ESG diagram. I'm kind of interested in both those aspects there. Oh, Vincent, you're a tough one. I love it. I would completely agree with the direction that you're coming from there. You know, Watson really connects our partners' philanthropic and triple bottom line goals with data-driven social impact through world-class nonprofit programming. So this programming, exactly what you're kind of getting at there, is helping them solve problems that exist in their industry or that might exist directly on their balance sheet. Right. Okay. And so, and I guess the the second part, which I, I, is you, you sometimes will have to reconcile, hey, you, you've got one hand over here and then second hand over here. And these things kind of polar opposites in some respects. Is there, is there any friction there that you have to manage? And I'm not saying to try to undermine what you're trying to do, but more to understand a lot of this is about changing people's perception and behavior. And, you know, there was a classic TED talk that is hard to process, but you kind of have to watch where a guy who made a whole bunch of money out of coal and oil said the transition to renewable is through gas. And a lot of people said, no, it's not. And he said, well, it's better than coal and oil. And 
you're kind of both right and it's hard to reconcile those two thoughts. And I'm wondering if you have to encounter that friction and how you guys have to deal with that challenge head on as well. Yeah, Vincent, I think that's a great call out. I'd say as a Watson Institute staff member, that friction doesn't exist for me particularly. And I can't speak for the rest of my teammates, but I think it's generally true that exactly what you're saying is correct. The other option here is that they don't care. So they could either, you know, provide money and resources and their networks and really help change the world in a positive way. Or they could say, eh, it's okay. Triple bottom line, forget about it. My profit's doing fine. So I'd like to think about our partners as being kind of the good guys. They're the ones who actually want to address some of these challenges. I won't lie to you, though. I, I will admit that, you know, some of our fellows who have come into different programs and, you know, I won't necessarily mention which particular programs, but they have called out that, hey, you know, my sponsor is doing something I don't really agree with. Right. And I think those are those beautiful moments of friction. I see that as transcendent moments where we actually have the sponsor, maybe for the first time in their life, maybe the first time in their organizational history, they're grappling with the challenges that they might have put in the world from a person who's actively taking their money right now. And I think that that's such a beautiful moment where both where the power dynamics really shift and we're no longer looking at the big corporation Goliath and the little guy Dave, like, no, these are two people wanting to change the world and the way they intend to get there may be different, but if we can align and collaborate, the, the amplification of that impact is really going to be amazing. Yeah, and I kind of, and it was a bit of a leading question to go down a rabbit hole, but also because I think the alternative is do nothing, or and also most of the value creation in life generally, but in this context specifically, comes out of doing the hard thing or pushing up against the friction and saying this thing is a friction, and if we don't tackle it, I have this saying: I think everyone's good when they're good, right? It's when things are a problem that you get to see the nature of people's character and their commitment to trying to move things forward. And I think what a lot of impact-led founders ignore or or maybe just try to gloss over is that it's very hard to change an industry or an organization from the outside. You also need to influence change from the inside. And I feel like some of these programs are a way to bring ideas and thinking into an organization that does want to change, but kind of doesn't have a lens on outside its own four walls. I I wouldn't say that's part of your stated aim with it, but is that kind of what you think or kind of what you observe going through these programs with the large corporates? Vincent, if this isn't the best podcast interview that's ever happened, you did your research today. So I'd love to bring up a perfect example. James Okina, he's a programs coordinator at Watson Institute. Sure. He's also an alum. During his time in the program in our South Florida office, he actually worked with a large corporation. And I'm not quite sure if I can mention the name, Benjamin, but not necessary. a very, very large corporation that touches your life about seven times a day. Okay. And he had those <laughs> tough conversations. He had right. those in full conversations, he pressed on his sponsor. And you know what? They hired him as a consultant for their upcoming nonprofit strategic initiatives. They asked, hey, is this the right place we should be putting our money? You know, we're working in a country that you are from or have a strong connection to. Do you, did you hear anything bad about this person we're about to give $100,000 to? Can you, can you kind of tell us what's going on there? And exactly what you said, you're bringing in those insights that you as a corporation may never have gotten access to. Once yeah. you think of all the things that someone has to go through to become a full-time employee. Yeah. I mean, the, the parallels here are kind of really interesting because right up front, we talked about this idea that you can't solve problems on the ground if you're in some ivory tower, but also if you're sitting in the ivory tower and you're thinking, how do we change ourselves without the outside information? 
you're equally at fault even if you're sitting in an office in Atlanta, Georgia or wherever that happened to be. The other thing that's interesting about this, there's a wonderful book, um, and we'll put links to it in the show notes, that's like I know you're a big fan of cool books, called Open Innovation. And it's quite an old book. It's like 20 or 30 years old, but it basically mapped what happened over the kind of 60s and 70s and 80s. And we saw the shift in the way innovation worked because it started in get a bunch of, I think, I can't remember the word they used for them, but propeller heads, I think, basically very smart people, in inverted commas, and locked them in a room for 10 years, give them plenty of funding, slide pizza boxes under the door, metaphorically, and leave them to it. And out comes user graphical user interfaces and mouse like a computer controller and Wi-Fi. These these types of innovations came out of that kind of context. And as soon as you sort of saw the advent of the internet and the advent of networks, that type of closed innovation just couldn't beat open innovation. Anyone who published their findings, anyone who interacted or built community, anyone who consulted with their stakeholders, whether it was the customer or, you know, the people impacted, their level and pace and quality of innovation um, massively outstripped the closed innovation. The closed innovation model is largely dead. I mean, Apple still kind of subscribes to it by not telling anyone what they're doing until someone gets on stage and says, here's all this magical stuff we created. But ultimately, you know, Apple runs 5% of de- you know mobiles and, and, and Android runs 95%, right? So it, it feels that there's some definitely some parallels here with this closed and open innovation. I want to kind of move on from enterprise a little bit, but it's kind of probably a sideways step because college is in the mix too. Is this right? What's Where are they in this and how does this all play out in the context of what we're talking about? Absolutely. So we have a current active partnership with Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida, USA. I always forget to say USA because it's an Australian podcast. But we have um, half our listeners in the US, by the way. Oh, amazing. Okay, okay. To this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but exactly right. You know, we do partner with universities. We had a partnership with the university based here in Colorado, one in Guatemala, and it was really a developing model where fellows called in the university context scholars are able to pursue a bachelor's degree in social impact innovation. So right. I think the the fun part of that partnership is that Lynn University saw a need that a lot of universities are they're starting to become aware of. And Watson Institute kind of stepped in and exactly like we do with our corporate partners, was able to provide the curriculum and the capacity and connections to ensure that students graduating from Lynn with that degree had everything that a regular Watson fellow through one of our accelerator programs has, plus a degree. So right. it's, it's a pretty nice deal. Right. And so, and this is, I'm guessing there's a few things at play here. One is about 15, 20 minutes ago in our interview, you just talked about how why isn't this stuff taught in schools? And so the obvious answer to that is we'll teach it in schools, in this case, colleges. So that's, that's clearly part of it. But it sounds to me as well, like you're never expecting everyone to come through the Watson Institute. So why not put the Watson Institute into the other institutes? So this is a, a footprint distribution type approach to get what the knowledge and the context and even the brand to a degree out into a broader market? Is that kind of, you said it's early in the spages, but how are you guys thinking about this? You know, that is getting into some really exciting strategy talk, Vincent. Unfortunately, I'm not at will to share, but I love the direction you're going and let's have a follow-up conversation about it. Perfect. I'm happy to revisit it in a year because yeah, it, it sounds to me like there's, it, it, it's a tough thing, I think, when you're trying to operate in a competitive market. But a lot of what you're preaching is the more we open this up, the better it's going to be. And I think that challenge is a real one. Like I'm doing some things unrelated to this podcast 
And my ultimate aim is to have this massive, massive impact. But I realized that we will never sell all the product. So for us to have the impact, we actually need to kind of let it go. You know, we kind of need to have our Tesla moment where we open source the electrification and say, well, if you want to build on our capability, you can because we care more about the problem than our own success, if that makes sense. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because I think if a lot of what you're doing is community network and education, then the universities are in the colleges are a prime place for that to be happening. But also my guess is, and tell me if I'm wrong here, a lot of the cohort of the types of people who are likely to want to engage with Watson are probably at an age where they're going to university. Is that an unfair statement? You know, you're speaking to our past perfectly there. Yeah. Most of our fellows along last seven years between 2013 to 2020, we're really in that 18 to 24-year-old range. Right. We are now moving to serving more advanced fellows and more ex- advanced venture founders who often forwent going to university and are now going to this accelerator, not as a replacement, I would say, but as exactly the function. It's an accelerator of the path that they chose for their life. Right. I'm going to, I'm just going to pick up on your use of the word advanced. And if anyone ever calls me old, I'm going to tell them I'm advanced. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And I'm totally going to be using that. <laughs> I'm 44 years advanced. That's kind of an interesting kind of, I guess the thing that I was kind of get to there is we tend to associate a lot of progressive idealism with youth. And I think that's missing the wood for the trees, right? Someone who's lived in a community for 30 years and is 44, to take my example, years old, has experienced the problem for 30 years and understands the stakeholders for 30 years is potentially a much better place to deal with the problem. That's right. You know, there are different factors at play. You does tend to come with energy and a willingness to believe that the impossible has always been possible. I just haven't tried it yet. As you called out, age comes with experience and an understanding of problems on a greater depth and breadth. One of my favorite things that actually happened in our most recent cohort was we had two phenomenal fellows. Oh my gosh, I just get so excited. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Ever for being excited. (laughs) (laughs) One was a phenomenal 18-year-old young female from China. The other was a 27-year-old El Salvadorian man. Both of them came in with startup ideas, and along the way, they actually blended their startup ideas Mm. to the point where what they came out of the accelerator with was so much stronger than what each of them came in with. Mm. And those were those exciting moments for me when exactly what you said, you know, those demographics meet and combine their skill sets. I'll admit 27 is not as advanced. That's what we were calling out before. But I think think the, the lesson still holds. Well, I mean, it depends. You just have to reframe it. Like 27 is 50% more advanced than 18. (laughs) Exactly. you can always find a a way to 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 compare things to suit the narrative that you need so i'm never never too worried about that but just i want to just follow that rabbit for a bit are you saying that they came into it both wanting to solve a similar problem in different ways and found the overlap of what they were doing is that what happened you know they came in with a similar un sustainability development goal Uh focus And their methods of solving the problem was very different. Both were focused on the environment and sustainability. The He was an engineer and she was a business marketing 
person. And so she actually wanted to fall to solve the problem more from a service mindset. He wanted to solve it more from a product mindset. And truly, the combination that they came up with, which is a bit of an amalgam, and which is kind of scary when folks mention when folks are starting up and they want to do a service and a product. I'm like, as an accelerator, as accelerator TV, I'm like, okay, you're kind of kind of going for the mountains right now when you should be climbing a hill. But it also is that's part of the reason I do it. That's part of the reason everyone at Watson Institute works there is that we love working with people who say, you know what? I see that hill over there. Huh, forget about that. I'm going to climb that mountain. And that gets exactly to what we were talking about earlier about summits. Yeah. And did it, sorry, but did it take, did they both combine their ideas and then go back into their respective markets and say, I'm going to execute this thing? Or they said, let's join forces and solve this in both places. Like what happened there? So they are joining forces. They're, they're actually solving challenge in El Salvador and they are working together on the ground. They just sent a picture to our cohort. We have a cohort group chat. They sent a yeah. picture of them having El Salvadorian coffee on the, looking over a mountain. And it was a huge jealousy moment for me. I was like, wait a second. I'm over here in Boulder in the deep in the snow and you're having, but that's, that's why we do it. We do it to create those moments. Yeah. I mean, if, if like, I, there's definitely a side venture here of a travel inspiration thing, like some of the most beautiful places in the world are places you've never heard of or never seen photos of. I'm sure a lot of these people are, are in those places, which would be amazing. <laughs> Even that extra product idea. I love it. Keep it coming. Yeah, sure. Don't need any more product ideas. I have, it's, it's coming across that there's, there's plenty on the ground here. And kind of, that kind of brings me to a, a kind of a good segue as well. In flow for 10 years, a lot's changed in the last three years and kind of your position now for where to go from here. I want to understand, like, like where to from here? Like, how do you guys 10x what it is that you're doing? How are you thinking about that? And then what are the things that are holding you back or you see as the challenges you're hill to climb, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I'd say in terms of next steps, we're just exactly, you're exactly right. We're so excited to continue amplifying and 10xing our impact not focusing too much on, you know, necessarily saying, okay, we're going to be partner of every university on the Western Hemisphere, or, you know, we're going to partner with every single corporation above this benchmark of profit. It really is ensuring that we're partnering with the right folks. Uh -huh. And as you can imagine, many of our first years were very outbound, us reaching out saying, hey, you know, we'd really love to work with you. Please, because those chances are good. But luckily, we're moving into a space of inbound. You know, corporations are actually reaching out and saying, we see the impact and the data-driven social impact that you're creating where you can actually define how many lives were touched over what time period. We, we have our numbers behind us. And yeah. so it's exciting to move into a place of really fielding requests and fielding those inquiries and partnering with the right folks. Yeah. And, and so it sounds to me though, like the, there's kind of some playbook here and I, you know, 10 years in, in the game, as we said before, 18 to 27, that's, that's 10 years. I mean, nine, but you get my point. There's, there's, there's already some good playbooks here, whether it's the, the way you're executing the actual accelerators, the way you move into a new market geographically, the base camp model, the colleges, you know, the, the, the enterprises. And so it's not necessarily about saying we need to invent new things. We kind of need to double down on what we're doing and be better at doing the thing that we're doing. It's almost incremental movement forward and more of the same, for want of a better word, rather than we're trying to find the next shiny object. Am I understanding that right? 
Yes, and we're always open to new opportunities and new ideas that come our way. I think we're definitely, we have the innovative mindset that we preach to our fellows. You know, if the right idea and the right partner comes along, we're always going to entertain the conversation. Yeah, I guess the reason I sort of touched on that is I think there's, I don't know, as as founders, and you talked a little bit before, I mean, you touched on it about the kind of the youthful exuberance and the kind of unbridled optimism. I can't remember the exact word you used, but it was something along those lines. And I think, you know, we we tend to try to, I don't know, think about those types of levers, but we also ignore that, you know, if you had 10 Fords and they you were running 10 of those programs, you would 10x your impact. Or if you ran your programs 50% better, you would have a 50% impact. And if you had a startup that was able to get 50% uplift in one year, they would be through the roof, right? So there is so much opportunity in in continuing to operationalize and improve the, the core of what you do rather than trying to find the new thing. And I think that's a lesson for a lot of impact-led founders and groups, which is get really good at the thing you already do and is already starting to work. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's been really exciting working with new partners. And as we kind of mentioned earlier, the what is it, the classic, the gold and the, the classic silver and gold packages, yeah. really optimizing and refining that to the point where we're delivering the absolute most value to both our corporate family fund and individual philanthropist partners and our fellows. I don't know about you, but when I work with startup founders, they're the only thing I think about when I wake up, when I go to sleep, when I'm eating lunch, I'm like, oh man, I should introduce this person to this person. And so, so much fun. Of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, so, I mean, it's the whole reason I do this show. So I absolutely exactly. understand. <laughs> you did it. So it's just so exciting to improve upon our processes to ensure that we are helping even more of those fellows. Like I, I dream of one day not being able to sleep because I'm constantly doing calls or introductions. You know, that's that's the dream. That's a, that's a wonderful measure of success. I did have one last question about measures because you touched on it just before, but how is success measured? How do you measure the success of a cohort? That data set that you've got, you don't need to give me all of the detail, but kind of what are the headlines and and how do you understand that? Because measuring success and impact is challenging, I think. And yeah, I'd love to understand a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that as you can imagine, it really kind of depends on which stakeholder we're talking to. There's always going to be stakeholders who care about X, Y, and Z more than ABC. Right. One of my favorite statistics that we like to lead with and build upon is we have 349 alumni from 68 countries who have raised more than $175 million and created more than 1,500 jobs. Right. So that kind of, that long sentence I gave you right there is kind of a, a, our major success metrics right there. But we don't see it as, you know, I think one thing I also really love about Watson is that we don't say, okay, we created 3,000 jobs, but they're really unhappy jobs, right. you know, low quality life. You know, that's the reason we I gave you kind of that big long sentence is that we need all those different pieces to be in place for us to define it as success. Yeah. And, but do you like, and this is where it gets super hard because someone who's working on a, a water issue in one country versus a poverty issue in another country or an access to energy issue. How do you even reconcile the impact of those? The, is the rest of this through kind of storytelling and and showcasing the Guatemalan and the Chinese who got together and did the thing that they did? Like, is that the other way that you measure this stuff and talk about this stuff? Vincent, what a perfect setup. And you're exactly <laughs> right. Another way we measure success is our exciting major event at the end of every single program, the summit. Mm. 
Right. When fellows come into our program, part of their application is actually a short video what what I know your listeners know as a pitch. And they're just kind of telling us about themselves and their venture. And usually when they start out, that pitch is not so strong. I don't know about you. My first pitch was trash. It was terrible. But over the time of be, having my own ventures and working through accelerators and for my own enterprises, you get better. And yeah. so Summit is this amazing moment where you actually get to showcase our fellows and they tell in their own words what they've accomplished, whether that's exactly what we talked about earlier, creating those jobs on the ground, how many people attended their base camp. I remember there was one fellow in the last Ford Fund Summit of 2022 who called out during their summit presentation that they had a base camp attendee come in who was low-income extremely impoverished in the UK. And after attending the base camp and actually working with the the founder who led the base camp, they applied for and got like a pretty solid job. But right. this base camp, and this, then that's one of those moments that I also brings me a lot of glee because no, I did not just tell you 200 people got a job because of 72 hours of that. No, right. I didn't just tell you they made $100 billion. But one person's life changed dramatically because of a base camp. And we get to showcase those stories and have our fellows tell those stories themselves at the summit. Yeah. I think I, it's funny as well, because you, as if, if you're involved in trying to build community around anything, I think, but, but impact maybe specifically, or, or as we're talking about here, you really remember those stories. I, I had a, a meetup in San Francisco for FinTech and I started it because I was frustrated. I couldn't find other people who cared about FinTech. It was 2012. And the first one we held, we had 30 people turned up and half of them wanted to help with Google checkout. They didn't understand what fintech, fintech wasn't a thing. So that wasn't, wasn't easy to understand, but we ran it for a few years and there was a guy who approached me about two years in and he said, I met my founder for my startup at your, at your meetup. And I was like, wow, that I wasn't expecting that. And that was, that, oh, that's still the one thing that sticks with me out of all of the things that we did and the interviews we did was that those two people fundamentally wouldn't have met unless that kind of community being created. That's always the thing that holds me. I want to finish with one last question. I know I said that was a lot, one last question. And I know Watson Institute is, is, a, is you know, relatively speaking, a big organization. But, but you in this organization, I just want to understand how you ended up being here and, and, and your relationship to the organization in terms of emotionally or, or, you know, the narrative of that story before we finish up for today. Okay, I'll give it to you. You know, it all started. I love that I'm putting my fingers together. And for those of you who can't see me, I'm putting my fingers and leaning back in my chair. It all started a few years ago. I was at Google as a solutions consultant here in Boulder, Colorado. And as one does, I became pretty pretty good at my job to the point where I wasn't filling an eight-hour workday anymore. And I am not one who could just sit down. So I needed something to do. So I dove into our Startups for Colorado team and probably put an extra 40 hours a week. It's fine. We won't talk about it. But <laughs> one of the most exciting parts of that was actually helping organize Google Boulder's first and second hackathons, which were called Boulder Startup Weekends in partnership with Techstars, mm -hmm. both years in a row. I kid you not, at the end of each, what, what may be called in that life, a summit, we had a summit at the end of each hackathon, and both years in a row, the best presenters were from Watson Institute. The first time it happened, I didn't think much of it. I thought, oh, you know, whatever. Second year, I'm like, okay, who's this Watson Institute? <laughs> right. All these amazing people. And, you know, the first year that was a fantastic woman from rural China. The next year was a man from rural Kenya coming to Boulder to bring right. their... Uh, 
using talent and passion and abilities. And I knew that I wanted to be where the rock stars are. And I'm so excited as Senior Director of Global Community Engagement that I get to introduce and connect and build networks for these rock stars. Yeah, I I love the organic kind of arc of that story, but also the thing that's kind of wonderful and a good kind of, I think we would say full stop in Australia, but you'd say period in the US, is that you came out of the kinds of organisations to do the kind of work that you want to take back into the kinds of (laughs) organisations that you came out of. It's a beautiful kind of way to close that that loop. Ebony, it was so fun talking to you today. And like your energy levels are just next level, which I love because I love the high energy levels generally. So thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about everything to do with Watson Institute and yourself as well. And yeah, we're, we're, I want to have a follow-up with you and understand more about the college stuff when that strategy's played out a bit more and it's a little more known. <laughs> so thank you for coming on today. Absolutely. Thank you, Vincent. Vincent. And I can't wait to see you on February 15th at 9 a.m. Mountain Standard Time at the 2023 Ford Fund Fellowship Summit, which you will be seeing the link for in your podcast episode. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change a system for the better, please go to www.shapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click subscribe so that you get the new episode. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. Connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you are looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.